Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Now we're starting a new series uh, that we're calling From Prison with Joy. You can see the prison bars that the creative team has put together. Uh, But that from prison with joy, the title is meant to convey the inherent challenge of the book. Because let's be honest, who writes from prison with joy? I mean, prison stinks inherently. They make it that way. By the way, that's its point, right? So that you won't want to go there again. And so this whole book of Philippians that we are beginning bristles with this... um, same juxtapos- juxtaposed challenge. Uh, Paul is in prison, and it's hard. He's not pretending that it's not hard. He just happens to be in these difficult circumstances, and he is still able to be at joy, to hold on to his peace and joy, and able to communicate that to other people. And it, along with his words, becomes the inherent challenge of the book, because he doesn't just say the thing. He is living this reality. And I want to admit with you that all books of the Bible challenge us. Now, sometimes you're reading a genealogy and might not find that particularly challenging, Uh, but all books have something to challenge us with. But the book of Philippians is one of those pokey little numbers uh, that will really challenge you. There are a few books that if you read them and actually digest both what's happening and what the writer is saying, It will challenge the substance of your faith. Uh, You can't read about his joy from prison and the challenge of the same without really pausing to think, what is it that derails me? What takes away my joy and my peace? What strength and character do I have as a Christian? So I urge you, before you begin these four short chapters in this book, uh, if you're going to pay attention, buckle up. Because this is big boy, big girl theology, and Paul is meaning it when he says, from prison with joy. Now, he's writing this letter later, probably around like 61 or 62. It's after his third missionary journey. We know about the big three missionary journeys with Paul. And after his third one, he's made an appeal to Caesar, which is an appeal to basically go to jail. And he spends about three years in prison before he makes it. Uh, all the way to Caesar, and he writes these prison epistles, these letters from prison, uh, from jail, possibly from Caesarea, uh, which is in Israel. He was there for three years under household imprisonment. I always like to tell people, Caesarea is still there. You can visit it. So when we go to Israel, come with us. Uh, Maybe this is exactly where uh, he wrote that letter from. It could be that he wrote it in Ephesus or possibly in Rome, but wherever he wrote it from, uh, we know that he wrote it from jail. And we know that he's writing it to a church that he loves. I hope that you see in this book how beloved these people are to him. And he understands that they are oppressed and challenged. Philippi is a difficult place to be a Christian. And so they are becoming divided. Isn't that funny when you're challenged from the outside and you should be most united? Outside challenges sometimes cause inside division. And so they're facing some internal division and plenty of outside challenges. And this is sort of a father figure pastor writing back to them uh, about standing up under the difficulty of their circumstances as he stands up 
under the difficulty of his circumstances. Um, an interesting little thing that not everybody does, but especially if you're a relatively new Christian, uh, there's a book in the Bible called the Book of Acts. It comes right after the four stories of Jesus, and it talks about how the church grew from Judea out into the rest of the world, and it primarily explains these missionary journeys of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all those uh, who are with him, the d- good Dr. Luke. And so usually when you read a New Testament letter, you can go back to Acts and find the context, and you should do that. And here you'll need to go back to Acts uh, chapter 16. And just to provide a little context for you, uh, if you go there, uh, beginning, I'm going to begin in uh, verse 9. And I want you to understand that Philippi, we have a map of it, is a profoundly important city for a couple of reasons. One, it's a far-flung Roman city on the edge of Europe uh, with great wealth and importance, but as far as Rome is considered, a very important city. Uh, But let me read you the tale of how they got there really quick. Uh, Chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. Um, It says, let me go down here. Uh, During the night, Paul... Now, during the night, they they are still in uh, um, what would be modern-day Turkey in this area, uh, what would be connected to the Middle East. And it says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Why don't you come over to Macedonia and help us? After Paul had seen the vision, we, because Luke is writing, he was there, got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we set out to sea and sailed straight through to Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And there we stayed for a while. Now, it's not just an important city. It is a change, a cataclysmic change in Paul's ministry because Macedonia, which is now Greece, is the beginning of Europe. They have crossed over from Turkey into Europe. This is the great European expansion, by the way. Many of you are European. (laughs) Uh, This is going to make it to Rome, from Rome under Constantine, under Constantine for good or bad everywhere. And uh, this is the first step. This is Paul's first step into European ministry. It's consequent to us. It's consequent to the world. And it was certainly consequent to the people uh, in Philippi. Uh, If we skip down to verse 13 of that same chapter, I'll just read it real quick. It says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city uh, because there's no synagogue in that city. So they're looking for a place where people pray. It says, we went outside the city Uh, gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and we began to speak there to a woman who had gathered there. Now, I want to pause here uh, because what you're not getting is that this is the ancient Near East. So Paul's about to tell you that his first European church was founded by a woman. And you're like, cool. You're not like, wow, like everybody else would be. Paul is out of his mind as far as they're concerned. Uh, Not only is he off to Europe among Gentiles, but now you're going to see that a woman is not just his first convert, but the first house church. It says, uh, we sat down there, began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Tyra Tyra, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart, because she had been possibly Jewish. Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Her and her household were baptized. She became a believer, and the church starts in her 
house. So he's moved to Europe. He's made a first European convert, a woman, and launches the first European church in her home. Well, if you go on reading, they have an incredible time uh, in Philippi. As is usual, they start a little trouble. There's this possessed girl following them around, declaring basically, what do you want with us, you the messengers of God? And Paul's trying to talk. He gets tired of it. He turns around. He casts the demons out of this girl, which initially sounds great until the owners who make money from her prophesying see this, uh, lose their income from her, raise up a mob. They beat uh, Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas and Luke, they beat them badly, and then they throw them into prison. So this is their Philippi context. Uh, what's interesting is when they get into prison, uh, Paul is not crushed by despair in prison. He has not lost his hope that God didn't call him, God didn't bring him here. I mean, stick with me. God calls you somewhere. You're like, yeah, God called me somewhere. That's going to be awesome. I got there and I got beat up and thrown in prison. Maybe God didn't call me. I mean, that would be my first conclusion. Like if you people beat me today and jail me, I'm going to be have some questions about this calling relationship. And so here you see clearly that uh, God is still with him and Paul knows it. So that instead of being at despair in jail, he is singing songs. He's praising God. He's making such a ruckus that everybody notices it. It says, in the middle of the night, a great earthquake shakes the prison and all the doors fly open. The prison jailer wakes up to see the doors open. A a jailer who loses a prisoner must give his own life in return. So he's terrified to see the doors open. Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke put him at ease and say, we're still here. In fact, he uses this opportunity of great terror to give the hope of Jesus Christ to the jailer, always the evangelist. And so the jailer himself, the jailer takes him to his household, and the jailer and his household are saved that night. And that's the Philippian context. Now, I want you to see how important this is, because he's going to write from prison back to a people he loves who are under difficulty, and he's going to say, bear up with faith under difficulty, and they're going to know he's not just spouting good ideas because they have seen him in prison joyfully. Are you with me? You know, somebody says, oh, I'm totally like that, and then they're not. He was in jail joyful. That's the leverage that he has when he speaks to the Philippians. That's the context that comes out of Acts chapter 16 that informs this letter. As you read it, Paul rejoices in all circumstances, even when he admits that hard and his joy is hard and his joy becomes a blessing to others. He's able to hold his peace and joy in difficulty and then he's able to share it with others. I'm going to say that one more time. He's able to both gain peace, hold peace, and share peace of God as a hope to others. That's why this little book is also sometimes called the book of joy, because in four short chapters, 16 times uses the word joy, rejoicing, or some derivative of joy or rejoicing to say, in difficulty for me and for you, do I write with joy? And the longer you read Paul, the more you will see that both joy and Jesus are his foundational concepts. Joy and Jesus, joy and Jesus, joy and Jesus, they are wed together in his mind. Uh, So I I want to underscore, before we get into it, uh, one last time, that that joy in Jesus aren't just his words, they're the testimony of his life. He is at joy with Jesus 
from prison. You guys with me? This morning we're going to kick off chapter 1, the first two verses. You can open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, first two verses. You don't have your Bible with you. Uh, the words will be up on the screen, but let me encourage you, especially if you're new, find a Bible, get it, bring it to church, write in it, fold over the pages, grow comfortable moving around in that physical Bible. Uh, we're just going to be in the first just 37 words. You'd think that'd be a short message, wouldn't you? Suckers. No, <laughs> uh, it'll be relatively short. Um, so 37 words, the first 37 words of Philippians, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons who are there, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just unpack a couple things. First thing I want to say is Timothy got to be included. Uh, I, I, by the way, I wish I could preach a whole other sermon here, but to be included with Paul in this letter is extraordinary, an immense honor for a faithful young man. I love that Paul calls them both servants. Uh, The NIV has a nice way of sanitizing more difficult words because the word is much better slave or bond servant at best. And Paul does not mind saying, I am sold out wholehearted belong to you. I'd rather be a wholehearted slave to Jesus than an undisciplined slave to my appetite. I think the strong word is better than the soft word wholehearted, complete belonging to Jesus. Um, And the next little part, what I want you to do, if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, and I'd like to get you there, uh, I want you to circle four words and connect them. So you ready? I want in that first sentence to circle the word all and in. See where it says to all the saints in Christ Jesus and connect the words all and in. And then in verse two, it says grace and peace. Now, I suppose the, you know, preposition and has connected there, the conjunction, but I would like you to make a little line there, right, too. Uh, Grace and peace, all and in, and grace and peace. Let's start with all and in, and what I like about all and in is that in just a couple of words, Paul, (coughs) they're carefully chosen words, Paul has both comforted and assured every believer who's in Philippi. With the Greek word that he chooses for all, he means to sweep in everyone that he is speaking to. And so do you see that he sweeps in? There may have been many. There's division in the church who have been told they do not belong. There may be some who did not support Paul. There may be some under duress who have not been so faithful. Paul is saying to all of you, he didn't have to say all. He could have just said, I'm writing to Philippi. He said, I want to gather all of you. All of you disenfranchised, all of you out at the edges, all of you who feel disconnected and disunified, I'm going to scoop all of you in. And then he does this wonderful thing. He connects it to the word in Jesus. I want all of you in. This preposition here means to be inside the orbit or influence of Jesus. Here's, I want you to picture like a bubble. You make a bubble in your head. And everything inside that bubble belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. He, it's to him, for him, about him, through him, empowered by him. There's this bubble that's all, everything inside there is encased, encompassed, contained. All in moves you inside that bubble. He just wants to say, whoever you are, with whatever brokenness, whatever's going on, all you in Jesus. I reunify. Who else unifies a whole church in four words, right? 
all, to all of you in Philippi, all of you are gathered in the hope of Jesus Christ. And then he goes to grace and peace. Now, Paul likes to do this. Once I point this out, you're going to notice how many of his books begin with grace and peace. And what Paul is doing is he's combining two traditional greetings. He combines the Hebrew traditional greeting of shalom, peace, with the Greek irene, or, uh, Greek greeting of grace, uh, which in a Greek sense probably means like unity. So he takes a Hebrew greeting and a Greek greeting, and he combines the two together, grace and peace. Now, by themselves, they're, they're loaded words, but I believe that Paul so frequently connects grace and peace because he is suggesting that they are inextricably connected. Does that make sense to you? With grace, there is always peace. Peace springs from grace. Let me say it simply to you this way. Without grace, there can be no peace. How can you have peace without grace? If you're not at peace with God, how can you be at peace with anything? But let me add, grace without peace is deficient. If you have been provided grace and it is not yielding peace, you have not been enjoying the intended gift of grace. Grace and peace are inextricably connected. By grace, Paul simply means that sanctifying and justifying peace that he has created between the Father and you through the work of Jesus Christ. You are both just and you have Power to become sanctified or to walk with Jesus. Once somebody uh, memorably, I'd say albeit mildly hokily, suggested this acrostic. Uh, Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It doesn't say everything, but it helps you remember. It's probably one if you've been in church that you are familiar with. But we remember grace as understanding we received God's undue riches at Christ's Hand. I'd like to put a little more meat on that idea uh, by reading the words from the apostle himself. Uh, we are going to pick it up in Romans chapter 3, and the words will be up there. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 21 and 24. Listen to Paul explain the idea that he's trying to convey here. <clears throat> he says, but now, but now, there's a sermon right there. But now, as in different from the past, a righteousness from God apart from the law, apart from your obedience, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Let me flip to 5.1. Listen to the combination of these words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have grace, we have peace. You with me? Let me read it one more time just to drill it in. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches 
of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is purely the gift of God, not by works, so that no human being can boast. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now the question that I want to ask is, to what end has grace been extended to you? And I must underscore again, grace has been given to us that we might understand peace. He just said again, why the forgiveness of sins if not peace? Both now, peace now, peace into forever. The gift, the natural yield, the outcome of grace is meant to be in us peace. I want you to hear me say, all the areas of your life are changed. Every relationship, everything you do by peace. When you can both have peace, hold peace, and share peace, you become the kind of person that shapes yourself and the world around you. I want to say again, the natural outcome. I put up a silly little thing that grace is co-equal to peace. I wish those were in a line because then it would make mathematical sense, but Literally, they're the same. They're co-consequent. They belong together. One belongs with the other. If you're not experiencing peace with grace, you're not experiencing the intended outcome. Paul sings in prison and writes letters from joy, from jail, because he is at peace. You with me? So I think this raises an interesting question. Why are so few of us at peace? (laughs) Why are so many Christians not having the yielded, intended, consequent peace that comes? And I think that I'd be a fool to say I could give all the answers, but I'd like to give a few answers. And here is where a diagram begins to appear in my mind. Uh, By the way, you should get used to me drawing diagrams. And we should find an easier way to do it. My brain, everything turns into a picture uh, in my brain, and it's easier for me to draw it. Uh, There could be a bunch of reasons that we have not peace from grace. Um, It could be that we don't know Jesus yet, who is the source of peace. There are people here who possibly don't actually know Jesus yet, and no Jesus means no peace. And so, but you can't experience peace without the grace. You can't just be a good person. Good personing does not yield peace. Only the total satisfaction, the overwhelming satisfaction that comes through Jesus yields grace and peace. So if you don't know Jesus yet, step one for peace, Jesus. It could be that you don't have a solid understanding or experience of both God's grace, his total love, his absolute salvation, his goodness, or his sovereignty. I think this is a big one. Many Christians know these things, but they have not experienced them or they have an inadequate theology of it. So they think, I've been a pretty bad person today. Jesus probably doesn't love me. I want to slam things on the ground. I I don't even say it's like being one penny in debt and having $40 billion paid on your behalf. And you're like, what? But I just spent another penny. It's cool. I dropped $40 billion. The... The theology of our salvation is so strong that maybe that's interfering with our peace. Perhaps, and this is a big one, we are not walking in alignment with what we know. Perhaps it is that we know and we know how to yield peace. We're just choosing not to do that. We are not walking in the faith that we understand. And I just want to add out there, it could be that we are overwhelmed by our emotions. 
I'm not suggesting you're always at peace. Like you get in a car wreck and things are a little frantic, you shouldn't be thinking, if I were a good Christian, I'd be at peace right at this second. Like it's cool to get a handle on things, you know? You find out tragic news and things feel like they're unwinding, it's going to unwind. I don't know about you, but I think emotions are like cats. I'm in command of neither, right? Uh, But I can learn to handle emotion. And I can get a, I can instead of be led by emotion, process emotion inside of truth. And the truth is about who Jesus is. And so, like I said, I begin to see a chart. And I'm going to, we're going to see how this goes. This could, this is an experiment that could go horribly wrong. But just think how entertaining it will be. Also, I have horrible handwriting. So if the outcome that we're trying to get to is peace, then I have suggested that grace is the foundational element. You cannot have peace without grace, right? But I want to fill in a couple more pieces of this puzzle because getting from grace to peace, we have involvement in that. Uh, It is we have to be involved in getting from grace to peace, both experiencing and embracing the gift that God has given us as part of our journey. So to that, I want to add just a couple of words, and I am watching the clock, friends. Uh, this, is, this is my constant battle. Uh, wholehearted. Oh, I already mentioned that I can't spell, right? Yeah, that's what graduate education gets you. Bad handwriting and no spelling. <laughs> Ongoing alignment. Alignment's going to be the one that snags me, isn't it? Alignment or something like that. Alignment. Okay. Teachers will tell me later which one I spelled wrong. That to go from grace to peace, our process is wholehearted, ongoing alignment. Because a whole heart is an undivided heart. How from grace to peace? Wholehearted dedication. The Bible's full of this. Be wholehearted. Now, can I give you a break? Nobody is constantly wholehearted. It does not mean never be divided. You would be an amazing person. It means wrestle the divisions in your heart. I I usually know a real Christian not by them being perfect because I haven't met them and I've never met Jesus. What I mean is above all, they desire wholehearted commitment. Above all the noise, above all the mistakes, above all the missteps, what they really want, what they really desire is God. That's how you wed by experience the desire and the practice of being wholehearted. David was called a man after God's own heart, right? Who was a murderer and adulterer. How could that be? Because he knew repentance, forgiveness, and rededication. And the point of being wholehearted is that you grow. That's where ongoing comes in. It's just not a step by, I got saved today, now I'm a good person. Wholeheartedness is this ongoing. When you fall down, you get up. When you make a mistake, you repent. When you're tired, you get some rest. When you figure out what's interfering with your experience of peace from grace, you you make adjustments. You align yourself. You seek wholehearted alignment by being ongoing, making these adjustments. You see, the word that Paul uses for peace here is shalom. This is the Hebrew word, it's the Greek, it's the translation of the Greek word erene that becomes his use of the word peace. It's a Hebrew loaded Hebrew term. And I wish I had time with this there. You can see the word shalom. Um, if I had time to unpack it, shalom literally means 
may you be aligned with God. That's peace. Uh, But it doesn't just mean that circumstantial. It means may your life, your heart, your emotions, your finances, your relationships, your family. It's a dedication that says may everything in your life find its way closer and closer to alignment with God so that you are at peace from his grace. Does that make sense to you? wholehearted, ongoing, seeking to align every area of my life. When you find out what's stealing your peace, it's probably in that window. You don't understand, you don't have it, you cannot hold it, and you are not sharing it with somebody else. Peace, brothers and sisters, is the natural consequence of grace. I want peace in your life wholehearted, ongoing alignment. You get up, you fall down. You make mistakes. You figure it out. You stand back up. You just keep swimming. You with me? Keep moving, and he will take you on the journey of wholehearted, ongoing alignment that his grace might yield shalom peace over your life. Well, here is where the second part of the diagram pops into my head. I must ask again, to what end? And I think the band's going to come up which is a cue that I'm almost done. So if you needed a reason to thank Jesus, there you go. (laughs) Isn't he wonderful? (laughs) It's almost done. All right. Uh, If you get peace, hold peace, then we have the duty to share peace. It cannot be that it's just meant that we are great holders of peace, which will be a wonderful testimony. But we are meant to share the peace that we have yielded with others. And let me put it kind of in concentric circles or stacking layers. If you have peace with God, first it must go to your family, right? I love this. I'm really good at evangelizing, but my kids think I'm a terror. I might be a little guilty of that, but let's just, you know, if you don't love the ones closest to you, best of luck on loving the ones far away from you with any real integrity. And then from your family must come your community, those people you work with, go to the gym with, build airplanes with. Uh, Wow, community is going to get me on the spelling it. That's hilarious. Um, uh, all, All the people that you have interaction with that you know, that's your community. And from there must go out to the world, right? This is, uh, this is our 1 Corinthians 5, ambassadors and missionaries for Christ. Both get grace that you might have peace and then become shared hope unto the world. It is not that we hold peace, it's that we share peace. So when we hold it, that we might become a sharer of it in a world that is in desperate need. I wanted to say this, and this is it. I desire this church, here's the three words that keep coming into my head, would be a hub of hope that we would draw people in and send them out, that the word associated with this congregation would be hope. We hold hope. We have peace. We share hope to those who have no hope, to those who think hope is impossible. We are the bringers of hope through Jesus Christ and the good news of his grace. Light on a hill is hope. Do you know what hungry people need more than they even need food? Hope. Hope and food together. Feed them and provide hope. Foster kids need hope. The kids in our camps need hope. Our neighbors need hope. Bellingham needs hope. The world needs hope. And we are called to be a hub of hope, holding the good news of Jesus Christ, the grace that yields peace, 
and gives us the power to share the good news of Jesus Christ. To you I say, let us do this good work. Shalom and amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.